It would be remarkably easy to suggest that London, in the year 1067, was a radically different place. That some new age was dawning upon the city and that everything had changed. But that claim would be false. Yes, the regime had changed. But London had experienced many regime changes over the years and it had endured. It is correct that the current king had gained it by right of conquest, but what was new here? Sven Forkbeard had done the same, his son Canute also. Yes, the new king had faced a contested claim to sovereignship, but Harold I had faced this only a few decades ago, and Harold Godwinson had usurped the throne last year. Maybe they would have seen it as radically different because the king was a foreigner. However, once again, we must mention that Canute and Forkbeard had been Danish, and half the Canute, Harold I, and Harold II were all half Danish. Edward the Confessor had been an English king, yes, but he'd been raised in Normandy. I mean, seriously, what was new about this situation? London had seen all of this before and had remained constant and true unto itself. So yes, a Norman called William was in charge of England, and what's all the fuss about? It's not like they were strangers to these Normans. Their bishop had been a Norman, after all, had been for over 15 years. There was nothing radically different here. And yet, despite this sense of continuity, something had changed. William had a character unlike any King of England yet seen. For one thing, he was openly more ignorant. Kings of England had traditionally been literate and educated. William was a scion of a culture of chivalry, and chivalry back in the 11th century didn't mean opening doors for ladies or composing poems. No, it just meant, as its French name suggested, it was a culture based around the horse and the warriors of the horse, men raised to be fighters, raised in martial arts, taught how to fight, how to be skilled in fighting, and literally nothing else. These were rulers who employed an auxiliary force of priests and bishops to do all their reading and writing for them. Yet for all his ignorance, William was not a stupid man, and he was also swift, bold, confident, and ruthless. He was the kind of man that if you crossed, or if he suspected you of crossing, he didn't wait and contemplate action. He acted boldly and decisively. So yes, while much was the same, the nature and the temperament of the king had changed. And London was in the unfortunate position for having been the only true bastion of resistance towards this man's conquest. This being said, London had survived hostile kings before, right? I mean, Canute had always been somewhat hostile towards London, and the city had come through that unscathed. It couldn't be worse than when Canute had invaded, right, gentlemen? Right? Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the story of London. This is a series which tries to tell the history of London as a single linear tale with one writer and narrator and one long, intricate chronicle. And with that introduction done, we need to talk about what happened immediately after William of Normandy took over, and how the city coped under new and rather brutal management. 
Welcome then to chapter 49 of the story of London. Concord. London had surrendered to William in December 1066 and very quickly, like within days of that surrender, they had to make some very fast negotiations with the new regime. London had, until that moment, been different from everywhere else in England. Since Alfred the Great had moved Londonwick to Londonburg, London had basically been the property of the king. No one else. It had a bishop, sure. But its streets were made up of souks, small communities that belonged to nobles from far and wide, but ultimately London had answered only to the King of England. They had an element of independence during the latter part of the Saxon era, which they clung to tightly. It is why they could be very bossy and domineering over the surrounding regions. All the way back in chapter 17 of the story, I mentioned the murderous Peace Guild of the last century, the vigilante group, who were really London's first attempt at any kind of civic governments, and had spent most of their time beating up the neighbouring communities. But the Peace Guild had given way to the citizens of London beginning to run their own affairs, and acting like they, as a collective body, had power equal to basically any earl in England. You see proof of this in what I call the concept of the Kingdom of London, the name of this entire section of the podcast. London had, at times, during the preceding decades, chosen kings to lead them, and the rest of England just had to cope with it. This independence, then, was in many ways London's most treasured possession, and quickly the residents realised that William was the kind of ruler who would happily take it away from them. They desperately needed to establish new relations with this king, and fast. Negotiations began very soon, like just before his coronation, or just after. A deal was quickly made. It wasn't much, a single scrap of paper, but it preserved the liberty of London. Understand, despite its significance to English history, there has been comparatively little work done on how William thought he would rule England in those first few months of the conquest. He was a newly crowned king, his violent takeover had been blessed by the Pope, and there exist tantalising hints that William of Normandy hoped, at this stage at least, to be a ruler of both English and Normans in equal measure, with a large degree of cooperation, everyone serving him as equals and partners, a unified Anglo-Norman state. And this was the desire London capitalised upon and sought to exploit. Consider the facts. William had taken England, and aside from Harold's last stand in Hastings, the only place that had offered serious resistance to him had been London under the local Staller, a man called Ansgar. It had been London who had driven off his men from Southwark, London who had elevated Edgar Etheling to the rank of king. London's surrender was the last resistance to his coronation. But afterwards we have hints of Londoners being violent towards his men, and perhaps even killing a few. William would have been well within his rights 
to drive out all the merchants and traders who had fought and had supported Harold and Edgar Aetheling. I mean, seizing their wealth would no doubt have been a highly profitable proposition someone could have said to him. But William, for all of his academic ignorance, wasn't stupid. Doing that would have destroyed a source of revenue and power. And London could be, and was, a steadying influence upon this new kingdom of his. Ultimately, William wanted peaceful and profitable terms. And London? You do not give a bunch of London merchants a window of opportunity like that and be surprised when they move like lightning and snatch the chance out of your hand. A deal was struck and London received a charter. The Charter of London was issued very early in William's reign. The terms probably negotiated as the Londoners presented themselves to William in uh, Berkhamsted and written and sealed either after the coronation on Thorny Island or soon afterwards. We know it was done very early in his reign, mainly because it's written in English. And after William had become a bit more established, he had his royal charters and decrees written in Latin. So it was a fast deal. And it isn't very much. It's just three lines. It promises that, one, that the laws that were in the place during King Edward's reign should be continued. Two, that every child should be his father's heir after his father died and be entitled to inherit his father's fortune. And three, that the king would suffer no man to do the citizens wrong. It's not much. Basically, the charter simply guaranteed the continuance of the conditions which prevailed before the conquest. And yet... Paradoxically, this small slip of parchment, which contains only four lines and a word or two, became one, if not the most precious documents the citizens of London ever possessed. It was their first charter, the earliest statement to say that London was a place different from everywhere else. It was their claim for independence within the regime. Sure, as long as William was king, London wouldn't do anything as stupid as to pick a new king to support. But it gave them the right to remain as a body separate from all other bodies and answerable only to the monarch. And this new charter was addressed to the Bishop of London and the Port Reeve of London and the Burwara of London, its citizens themselves. Here in writing is a document that gave Londoners the guarantee that what whatever happened, they were safe. Things would not change. Well, some things would not change. That document was addressed to the Bishop of London, the Norman born and raised Bishop William. But the name of the Portreeve on it was different. Port Reeve Ansgar no longer held that title. Somewhere between William's coronation, December 25th, 1066, and his return to Normandy the following February 21st, 1067, William had given Ansgar title of Port Reeve and possibly the position of Sheriff of London and possibly even the position of Staller to a faithful Norman underling, a man called Gosfrid or Geoffrey de Mandeville. Ansgar was out. We know from records that Ansgar kept his estates outside of London, but these positions? Geoffrey de Mandeville now held them. He was to be, it appeared, William's man to keep an eye on London, the head of occupational forces in the city, shall we say, 
as the king focused on the rest of the nation. But let me make this clear, even with this small charter, London was a conquered city. It was under military occupation. And this brought about a huge geographic change to London. See, Canute had occupied London with 40 ships filled with mercenary Vikings. He kept in place at the English taxpayers' expense, and they mostly lived in South London and Southwark and Lambeth, really. But William and de Mandeville, however, did something very different. They built castles. They built two castles. It's a measure of London's size and important that the Normans constructed two castles to oversee its occupation. And you have to understand what kind of castle they were. They were both wooden structures, but they were stout enough and strong enough that the residents would have had a hard time storming them quickly. It wasn't impossible, but that missed the point. The early castles of the Normans were not designed to resist things. They were simply designed to be force multipliers. What do I mean by that? Well, most estimates set the population of London around now at about 10,000 souls, give or take. If you had, say, 100 knights and men-at-arms, that's still a force way too small to even hope to hold off such a number for more than a few minutes. But if you stuck them behind a castle or some kind of reinforced wooden barricade, suddenly it's more than enough to hold them off for a while. Hold them off and send for reinforcements. That's what these constructions did. They multiplied the forces of William to allow him to maintain control over England. And de Mandeville constructed two such castles, one in the west and one in the east. Now the western one was located near the strategically important junction of the River Fleet and the River Thames. There are some historians who claim this region had been fortified for some time. A couple of centuries after these events, a monk based in the Abbey of Westminster claimed that the fortified area here in the west of London had existed before Canute had invaded and dated back to Mercian times. And in fact, he said that when Canute had taken over, this fortified building had been the property of Idric Streona in his role as Ildeman of Mercia, and even more, that Canute had ordered Streona killed in this building. It is a dubious claim. But the story is worth telling, along with the belief that afterwards Canute had given this fortified region to none other than our old friend Osgood Clapper, whose daughter had married Tovi Pruda, and Tovi Pruda's son was none other than Ansgar the Staller. I'd personally love that to be true, as it's a wonderful bit of London gossip and suggests how insular London was back then. But, as I said, this claim is dubious was made a couple of hundred years later by a monk in Westminster. And anyway, this region saw a large wooden castle be built within it. Now, every English schoolchild is taught about the famous Norman Mott and Bailey castles. You build a tower upon an artificially constructed hill. This is the Mott. And then around that, an outer wall is constructed. This is the Bailey. This being said, we do not think the Normans ever built a Motten Bailey castle in London anywhere. And where do we get this from? Well, a significant lack of motts in London's archaeological records. As far as we can tell, this original Norman construction on the western side of London was a large wooden stockade 
maybe with a fort inside it. Something quite ferocious could be constructed quite quickly and a wooden structure of some complexity could have been made in a very quick amount of time, especially if built upon existing fortifications. Also, given the Normans would have been clearing out any houses to make way for it, they would, based on what we've seen elsewhere at this time, have recycled local homes to help construct it. We don't know for sure, as this structure wasn't going to last very long. Within a little over a decade after they built it, this original wooden structure would be destroyed. And when the Normans went to rebuild it, it became two separate stone towers, one by the riverside and the other about 230 feet to the north of it, but we'll get to them when they're built. And on the east side of London, another large wooden construction, another wooden stockade tower built upon a raised hill next to the docks on Billingsgate. This was a natural position for such a fortress, as this was on the banks of the Thames at the eastern extremity of the city. Any attack from the outside, like say another Viking fleet, would have this overlooking them. This new castle or stockade commanded the approach from the east by land and water and would control the passages of ships up and down the Thames. Added to that, since it was being built on already raised ground, it would have dominated the skyline of the city. A newly constructed wooden fortress that would remind the population they were under the watchful eye of their new boss. A structure that would in time acquire a name that was to remain with it for the next 1,000 years. This would become the Tower of London. And it begins here, with a wooden tower and garrison for the men under the command of Portrive de Mandeville. And do not underestimate the influence of this man. De Mandeville was to become one of the ten richest Norman landowners of England and a vital part of William's reign. But speaking of William's new reign, please be aware it certainly was not one focused on hearts and flowers here. Elsewhere in England, William and his supporters were very quickly all about taking the submission of the English and sorting out the redistribution of their lands amongst his followers. And London was to be no exception. As we've seen, Ansgar was removed very soon after the takeover, and de Mandeville just took his roles. The issue with London was much of the land were souks. As I said, these were owned by landowners from outside of the city. How long would they remain in English hands? This question worried many, and they had reason to worry. One other thing had already changed in London, you see, and that change was profound. The great fleet of London, the great fleet of England, which had once dominated the North Sea and the Channel and the Irish Sea, so that was gone. There was no shipfjord anymore. Naval power did not interest William of Normandy, not even slightly. He just needed a few ships to take him and his inner court back and forth across the sea. And so the English fleet, the pride of the Anglo-Saxon state, ceased to be. Lambeth, newly ravaged Lambeth, would see no ship houses built to repair the ones that had just been destroyed. There would be no more warships. From now on, London would only know merchant craft. And like that, the great tradition of the fleets of London was dead. Into the vacuum left by that, the Irish Sea was to become the playground for the Norse diaspora 
Despite the domination of Dublin and other ports by native Irish, the Norse of the Irish Sea continued. As the risk of Viking attack from Scandinavia died down, the risk poised by the Vikings of the Irish Sea continued and grew, and it continued for a long time. It would be many years from now that the fleets of England would sail again, many years before the truth, so obvious to the Saxon kings of England that the Irish Sea was the back door into England and that sea-based troops would always have an advantage over land-based ones, would be remembered. As the new King William began his reign, despite being crowned in Westminster, it seemed that he couldn't stay there. And in fact, he decided to locate himself near London, but certainly not quite in it. William sailed downriver to Barking. At the time, Barking was a fishing village to the east of London, and what was worse, the land around Barking was exceptionally marshy and desolate. Why the hell did he go there? Well, there was an abbey in Barking, a nunnery to be precise, and its location and desolate landscapes had made it quite appealing to those sisters seeking to serve God. You see, convents in the midst of desolate lands were very fashionable at the time in England. And as such, very quietly in the decades leading up to this moment, the Abbey in Barking had become one of the most high-profile and well-appointed abbeys in all of England. So take that fact, and now add to it that the King's supposed residence over on Thorny Island had just been burned and looted and ransacked by William's men on Christmas Day. What was the best place to stay in the region after Edward's palace had been looted and wrecked? That's right, private quarters over at the Abbey in Barking. So here William went because he's the king and he deserves a nice place to sleep. And this was the best place to sleep for miles around. William conducted business here for a few months before he quickly left to return to Normandy in triumph alongside his hostages. Oops, sorry, no, the great and good of England, the earls and and bishops and, uh, oh, and Edgar Etherling. The early part of 1067 saw William do a few other things like allocate land to his supporters and also confirm land to those Saxons who had sworn to him. But he also copied another English tradition, last done by Canute and Arthur Canute. He basically instituted a huge tax upon the English population, a very Norman version of the Danegels of old. Why? Well, he had a lot of men he wanted to pay off. Some things, London probably felt, never change, eh? By that March in 1067, William got on board a ship, probably the Mora, and sailed back to Normandy. London then carried on under the regime of de Mandeville. Some decades later, someone would produce a document claiming that in 1067, the Church of Magnus the Martyr received a generous land grant this year, And they said this meant the church certainly existed back then, and its parish had included the bridge and the traffic upon the bridge and some of the revenues from the tolls being charged to cross the bridge. However, that document was created sometime in the next century by someone to claim something bogus. And it's probably not proof the church existed in 1067. It may have existed in 1067, but that document just proves that fraud and forgery are alive and well in 12th century London. What 1067 did show us was London busy with the affairs of running the nation. 
While the other royal mint, the one in Southwark, had been destroyed in the fighting of the year before and was being rebuilt, it seems, as a matter of priority, London's mint was still the centre of English monetary policy, and early this year, new coin dies were cast with William's likeness upon them and sent out from London to the mints of places like Exeter, Gloucester, Worcester, Norwich and York. The mechanism of the state Edward the Confessor had set up was working smoothly for William the Conqueror. Not that everything was going so smoothly out in the rest of the country. Stemming from this early in his reign, a new fine was initiated across England, the Murdrum fine. This stated that if a Norman or a Frenchman was killed, the lord of the land the murder took place on would have to pay a fine of 46 shillings of silver if the killer had not been caught within five days. And if the lord couldn't afford such a fine, then the taxpayers, the hundred around the region where the killing happened, would share the financial burden. Fifty years from now, one historical source claimed this law was written due to sporadic partisan activity out across the country. These were small embers of larger fires that would eventually engulf all of England. William returned to Normandy in triumph and glory. Gifts were given and celebrations held, an entourage of English hostages with him. Still, they only stayed for about a year before they were allowed to return to England, but Normandy wasn't a placid province that William could leave alone. It was a snake pit, region rife with political instability. As Duke of Normandy, William had had his hands full just trying to manage the various factions of that province. And now, he was supposed to be able to control that place while also running England, which his uncle, Bishop Odo of Bayeux, was currently in charge of. Quickly it became apparent that the task before him was mammoth. During 1067, William would have gained word from England of growing dangers and discontent across the land. A ship of soldiers he had sent over to England had been blown off course and landed at Exeter, where they'd been manhandled and attacked. And William's representative to run the north of England, a man called Copsig, had held the post for less than five weeks before he was murdered north of the River Tyne. This, coupled with reports of violence in the southeast and the West Midlands, let William know not only was Normandy a snake pit, so was England. He sailed back and spent the Christmas of 1067 in London, the hall on Thorny Island, seemingly restored and repaired now for him to be able to stay there. That midwinter court of 1067-1068 was an important one. London would have witnessed the king now in full William the Conqueror mode, a dynamo of energy, decisiveness, and sheer force of will. Problems, no matter how difficult they were, were dealt with head on, and William had problems, one of which had happened while he was away. Count Eustace of Boulogne, who had joined his side during the invasion and had been carrying the Pope's banner, he decided to pick a fight with Dover again, 14 years after his last fight. And in truth, he was simply in rebellion against the king because he was after a bigger share of the spoils, we think. But this didn't go well, and I'll cover this slightly more next chapter. And it resulted in Count Eustace Boulogne being tried and condemned for actions against the king at that midwinter court. It wasn't a permanent thing, and with a few years, 
Eustace was back in William's good book. But the Midwinter Court of 1067 and 68 also witnessed something else that was to have a more profound effect on London. William granted a charter to a church in London. Now this church had originally been established by a clerk of the king, a man called Ingelic. Ingelic had originally served Edward the Confessor and seems to have been one of those Saxons who were willing to serve under William also. Supposedly, this church had been established by Ingelic, who owned the Soak of Aldersgate, and also by his brother, a man called Irad, about 11 years earlier. But for his first year of faithful service, William granted him a charter which set down the rules of this particular holy place. This church, St. Martin's Le Grand, was now established as a collegiate church, or a royal free chapel. The charter that William gave Ingelic's church was basically for the right for it and its precincts to be exempted from any interference from the Bishop of London or any other bishop or archbishop for that matter. It ran itself. And this liberty that was granted to it also extended to the civic authorities as well. As London was to discover fairly soon afterwards, St. Martin Le Grand was eventually to become a recognised place of sanctuary for all those fleeing the law. However, the king had national affairs to deal with, the first being the growing instability of his regime. It is a measure of how unstable the foundations of the new regime were that William needed to ride out personally in the depths of winter that January 1068 and deal with the situation in Exeter. There is a hint that his intelligence told him the West Country was turning against him and he needed to act boldly. His problem, he simply didn't have enough men at his disposal that January. And so William did something he had not done before. He called upon his new English subjects to supplement his new strike force. And at least one historian I have read suggested that at this, the feared of London was called upon, and they answered that call. As London had learned under Canute some decades earlier, the best way to get in with a new lord was to help them out in a fight at times. And we know that London's men, the feared of the London sin, were involved in operations in 1069, so I agree with those historians who suggested they marched out in 1068 and were out for two busy years over in the West. And they were busy over in the West. Harold Godwinson's three sons had survived the Norman invasion and had fled to Harold's go-to safe place, the Port of Dublin. Here they hired a bunch of Irish Vikings to help them attack England as their father had done nearly 20 years earlier. Meanwhile, Harold's mother seemed to be trying to turn Exeter into a bastion of pro-Godwinite resistance. But the adventures of William and the Londoners who had marched out to deal with the Godwinsons, Irish Vikings and Exeter, I'm going to leave to another chapter. In terms of the new regime's impact upon land ownership in the city, it was after the Winter Court that William began the process now of dividing more and more land out to his people over the native Saxons around the country. But we have issues about what this did to London, due to the fact that, as I've mentioned previously, the entry for London in the Doomsday Book doesn't exist at all. As far as we can tell, however, 
King William seems to have carried out the policy he was adopting elsewhere in England upon London, which was the larger Saxon landowners, so the, the holders of several of the London soaks and manors, were being dispossessed to make room for his Norman followers. But the smaller landowners, the little people, they were not disturbed. And since he seemed to be going after the guys who owned soaks in London but didn't actually live in London on the whole, the city and the residents seemed to have taken this without too much grumbling. Some of this he did very gradually. For example, the properties of the ecclesiastics, such as the pre-conquest soaks of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishop of London, the deans of St. Paul's and St. Martin the Grands, the abbots of St. Albans, Westminster, Chertsey, Waltham, Ramsey and others, he could make pass from Saxon rule to Norman rule by simply making sure a Norman held those titles. London was already a Normandy bishopric, so it would be easy enough done, and there would be no disruption at all. But with the lay soak owners, it does appear, and again the records are sketchy, that the Saxon holders were dispossessed because their properties do appear at a later date in the hands of William's Norman followers. It's just that they were not all confiscated at once. Ingelric, who I mentioned earlier, he continued to own the soak of Aldersgate as late as 1069, where his name is attested in a royal charter relating to Exeter. Eventually, however, his soak in London and the lands in Essex he held passed to Count Eustace of Boulogne. But that would come sometime in the future when Eustace was back in the good books of William. Everything at this early stage was in transition, and there were many moving parts. William was back in London for his Whitsuntide court when Queen Matilda, his wife, was crowned at Westminster in the presence of a great assembly of both French and English. Matilda's coronation as queen was important to William for reasons both symbolic and pragmatic. She was a mother of their eight children and she was carrying and expecting to drop a ninth any day now. And she was also someone who spent most of her remaining time afterwards in Normandy. It appears, and I am simplifying a very complex political situation here, but it appears to have basically been, he wanted to make her a queen, but Matilda's main job was helping William run Normandy when he was focusing on England. It's amazing how fast people make traditions, you know. Even now, this soon into William's reign, there began an expectation that William would keep a Christmas court in Gloucester, an Easter court in Winchester, and a Whitsuntide court in London. But this was impossible to implement, and now the damage of the sack of Westminster Hall had been repaired, William used Westminster as a base at other times of the year. So, as we approach 1069, we see London is changing, but it's also trying to mitigate and slow down those changes, trying to stay off William's radar, really. London was under the control of a new Norman overlord, de Mandeville, and rolling with the punches of the early regime, offering good service and being as loyal as they could be whenever they could be. But out there, in the rest of England, the fires of rebellion were catching, and London was to find the regime of King William was about to get much darker and way more brutal. 
and I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. I do so hope you enjoyed it. Coming up, chapter 50. Yep, I've made it to 50 episodes. Wow, and I'm only up to 1068. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, anyway, it's been a real pleasure to be telling the story of London, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I really hope you've enjoyed it too, whether you've just dropped in for occasional episodes as they've interested you, or if you have, you mad fools, listened and binged the entire thing. Thank you for joining me on this incredible journey. Enough of me. 50 episodes. Can't believe I've made it. Coming up next episode, chapter 50, Catching Fire. Boy, do things get dark. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Bye. Thank you.